Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast, the untold stories of well-meaning white people. Today's guest is Dr. David Freeman. He spent 16 years as a systems engineer at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, where he developed and fielded advanced technologies in support of national defense. He holds master's and PhD degrees from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in civil and mechanical engineering and attended the North Carolina A&T State University for his undergraduate studies. He has spent the last eight years in study of somatic practices, such as Tantra and orgasmic meditation, crediting the organizations of the International School of Temple Arts, One Taste, Source Tantra, and the Human Awareness Institute. He has facilitated workshops and retreats in the art and practice of sexual communication in Costa Rica and across the U.S., and has an interest in helping sex-positive communities understand the cultural value of connecting more effectively with Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or known, known as BIPOC. I want to thank you for being here, Dr. David Freeman. It is really an honor. My pleasure. I want to start us off as I begin every episode with what does well-meaning white people or whiteness mean to you? Mm. To me, that means someone who has a desire to function as an ally in the fight for fights for injustice, uh, someone who has and desires to put effort into um, what will bring about change, positive change in the fight that we all have. And um, I, I guess I'll start there because um, that's an important, a really important part because sometimes as I'm looking at this, um, we can also often see the efforts not being fully or complete. And because of that, um, I think there's more work to be done. I want to just pause you on that and just say that the distinction you made is that well-meaning white person is that within that person's body, they actually crave or want to do well by people in black bodies or indigenous bodies. And they, they, they might want to, but don't necessarily know what to do or think they're doing the right thing, but, but don't even realize that what they're doing is offensive or rooted in historical patterns of Absolutely. abuse as Absolutely. opposed to 
the person who is an obvious external racist that isn't wanting to learn a new way, that just is stuck in that stance and isn't of this thing like, huh, I didn't even know that what I was doing was offensive. Right. Intention is very important. And, and this is the key. And this is why it becomes a challenge sometimes when I, you, when I see someone's effort, putting it, you know, they're putting in a lot of energy to make change, to protest, to, um, to show that they're, on, they're in, a, in favor Outside. of a particular. Exactly. And, um, but when I see that that effort is not making the progress or there's something missing in that effort, it seems like something that's not going to bring about change or something that is going to take the amount of effort that they're putting into the, the exercise and just kind of drain them. So it will be something that is just going to pitter out. And so uh, in that case, you know, we always have to come back to the point that the intention is right, but the, the, there's something that needs to be adjusted in the method. Mm, mm. I'd like you to explain that a little bit more um, because I've heard that in the, the reason I really wanted to focus on the well-meaning white people, as opposed to kind of this idea of really horrible racism out there is that we carry these historical patterns in our bodies. And so of course we're going to play out things that we may not even know we're playing out racist ideology and we're well-meaning we're out there picketing but we don't realize the thing that comes out of our mouth is actually rooted in abusive predatory patterns so i'm bringing it up to say that in the anti-racist language that has emerged in the last number of years that a lot of uh you know books have been written and these types of things not that they didn't exist before but they've just kind of become even more amplified in the last number of years um there's a distinction between intention and impact. And that's yes. what I hear you say exactly. is that yes. intention is great, but it's really not enough if you're really behind what's needed to create the impact that your intention may be dancing around. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm not refer- not even referring to those who are have, have good intentions we're out there uh, holding picket signs and uh, marching and protesting and not re- not aware that what they're actually saying or what they're doing may have some um, roots of racism. But these are the ones who have done the work. They've done studies and they're out there protesting, but not aware that there's no end point. I think whenever you whenever there's a protest, one thing that is very important, and I think we've as a whole culture have lost this over time because there's been so much protesting about so many different things. We have forgotten that when you set up to have a protest, there needs to be the outcome, the desired outcome needs to be well-defined. How do you know that you're finished? How will you ever know that you're finished with the protest, that you've met your, your ends? And this is one of the things that I saw two years ago with the Black Lives Matter movement. The point was that we're all so tired of seeing this uh, scene repeated time and time again, where most of the time it's recorded and we're seeing a person of color being killed um, senselessly. Um, a lot of times there's no aggression, there's no need for this, there's no um, justification for a shooting or um, a, a, a arrest, an arrest or something of that nature. And yet, um, so we we've had many different instances of protests set up because we're tired of that. Um, 
And what I saw, especially after George Floyd was killed, um, here in Massachusetts, there were months of protests. I'd say probably uh, six weeks to two months of people who are out there on the corners every single day. And for me, when I saw that, I just thought two things. One, that's a lot of energy. These people are showing up systematically every night with their signs. And, and, and then, so that's one thing. There's a lot of energy going into this. The other part of that is what are they here for? And so they'd stand out on the streets. People would blow their horns that they passed, blow their horns in support. Um, you know, Massachusetts is a blue state, so it was mostly support. Um, yeah. But at the same time, th- there was no defined outcome. We're going to stand here until dot, dot, dot. And so what happens is eventually, you know, first there's a, a large number of people who are coming out every night and protesting, and they're making sure that everybody sees them as they pass. And we're here in support of Black lives. And then as time goes on, there are fewer and fewer people because, well, I was there every night for for six weeks. And, um, you know, it changed my life. But now it's time to move on. There's no defined outcome. How do you know that you're finished with this? Because I think if you, unless you make even small incremental steps in, in the effort that you're pouring in, then you're, it, it's pointless. And that's hard to say also, because as, as we pointed out, we're talking about the well-meaning, well-intentioned people. So these are the people who are doing the right things, but it's not effective. So we need the impact. So um, I can't, in my own system, I have to be careful about how I criticize somebody who is doing the right thing, who has the right intention, who wants to see things change, um, because there's so many other people who are on the opposite side of that. I think that's a really good point. I've heard this um, from, you know, other black people or even say mixed people, right. Who are black and white. And so they're, they're kind of in this complex middle um, and just saying, Hey, I don't feel that is nearly as bad of a problem as the people who are directly publicly on the opposite. So it's hard to kind of really speak to this issue as complex as it is. Um, So I really, I want to say, I hear you on that. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear more from you about that complexity because I feel like one of the needs of being able to highlight it is that unless we really look at how many white people don't want to be seen as racist versus actually examining what you're talking about, is what I'm doing actually impacting in a way that's meaningful in the lives of black people and indigenous people, or am I just out there performatively showing and thinking I'm doing the right thing, but I've never actually inquired, could there be something with a result that creates more enrichment in real people's lives as opposed to a public interface? Right. And I think it's a, I think in one way it's a lost art. It's, you know, I I think back to the days when Martin Luther King was marching you know, the march would be a one-day march and one day with a definition, a defined uh, outcome. This is where we're marching from. We're going to march on Selma and this is what we want. When we leave there this evening, this is what we're mm. going to have. And we're going to stand there until we get it. And we're going to be at, as an obstruction. Uh, we're going to be 
in the way of anyone who wants to do anything that day until we get this. And we're going to be very clear about what we want. And this is what you need to give us in order for us to leave. And, and so it was a very, in that way, it was very effective. It was a very much a hard hitting um, means of um, taking a stand. And um, it, it wasn't something that is just a nuisance. You know, oh, these people are out again. Uh, okay. You know, it's been two weeks now. They're still out there. Um, I think um, activism as a whole, to have effective active, activism, I think it needs to have a, as I said, a clear desired outcome. You know, mm. This is why we're here. Um, and we need to define and know what is the, what is our success? What defines success for this action that we're doing right now? And without that, I think um, this will not be as effective uh, we're just, and but there's still a lot of energy going into it. Um, mm. You know, people are being asked to come out every night. They're showing up. Um, that energy could be put to use for something that is more effective. And um, I think that that's an important, um, a really important thing that needs to be addressed. And as I said, um, I don't want to be critical of the people who are doing this because these are the these are the people who are giving their time, effort, and energy, and their hearts for something they believe in, um, which is the, the, the thing that I want as well. What would you feel like is, a, is an alternative suggestion in, in a pivot for mm. those that may be partaking in, in that as a cause mm-hmm. um, and a question that could be asked that could maybe offer something else? Well, I, I think the, you know, just that we need to um, be clear on the um, the outcomes, why we're doing what we're doing. And I think that's going to require uh, conversations um, amongst those who, not just those who are participating and showing up and putting in the energy, but everyone who's a stakeholder. One of the things that I saw, at least from where, where, I, where I am right now, is, um, and I don't know what the marches look like across the country. But here, um, the marches were mostly mostly white people hmm. um, who were showing up every night um, with their signs. And um, I wondered, um, has there been a conversation with people hmm. of color to say, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this thing? Um, how would you feel about that? Like, what's your input? Do you have something? Is there anything that you would do differently? Um, is there... Um, something more that you'd like to have addressed in this effort that we're putting in. We have energy. We're going to do something. We want your input, not just we're doing something. We, you know, we saw something that makes us also feel horrible and we want to see a change. So we're going to stand out here. And I, I was going to say until that changes, but I don't think, I don't think you can stand out there until that changes. Right? This, this has been going on, you know, from the, perspective of black people this has been going on for um I guess we're from our memory uh, you know almost 100 years uh, and i'm just talking about the protests um and so to say right, you're not talking about the lynchings and the public no. murderings and the the easily swept up brutalization of black bodies in right. the interface of of everyday culture like going to the grocery store or walking down the street or being in your own home or just all of the places 
um, that's been going on for centuries. And so the Absolutely. internalization and the imp- it, it, the compounding, much less what you're saying is historically there was a a bit more strategy to the march, right? Or to Absolutely. the protest. And then that's kind of gotten washed to where there's a lot of mm-hmm. vehement emotion. But I, a simple thing you just said, have any of the people in your area, you're talking about Massachusetts. So you're saying mm-hmm. that the protests were mostly white people and, and it, you made, made yourself curious and wonder if they asked any black people or anybody outside of a white body, how would this make you feel? Does this feel like it's support? What could be more supportive? What right. could we do with our energy? How does that land for you as a black man? You're driving through Massachusetts. You see this. Is that the question that came up or was there something more that came up in your body? Oh, um, that's a great question. And um, again, I want to point out that um, through all of this, I was aware that these are the people who want to make a change. The people who would, if I were in a situation, these would be the people I would want to have around me at that time. However, um, I would see them standing out on the corner every night. And my thought is, you know, this is going to go the same way a lot of these efforts have gone. You're going to stand out here until you're tired, and then you're going to go home. And it might take six weeks, it might take eight weeks, but there's no defined outcome. Like, you're, there's no prize to take home at the end of this, other than to be able to say, you know, back in 2020, I stood out in the corner protesting. Like, no gold medal, right? No exactly. gold star, ladies and gentlemen. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes people will create their own gold star t-shirts or hats or other things that they wear or carry around, even the flag. Signs, yard signs, window signs. Exactly. But what's missing is um, to be effective, there has to be, I guess, a more systematic approach to the protest. And, And this means even organizing with the protesters in the next town and the next town. And even if it's having three towns to come together to get one small outcome, positive outcome from one of those three towns, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be a a focused effort and just going out and pouring in so much energy. And, you know, the energy itself was beautiful to see so many people move to say, we've had enough of this. We want to see things change, even though we are not black. And, and so um, that felt good. And to see um, it, it, you know, it also, so, so that felt good. However, um, understanding, um, seeing this many times in my lifetime, that without a reason, a defined, clear outcome, this is what we want. Um, this is just going to go the same way that many of those have gone gone that uh, people are going to stand out there until they've um, until they burn out. You know, if six weeks is a long time to stand on a corner and um, rightly so, you know, I, I justifiably so I understand when they say that, you know, I've put in a lot of time and, you know, I need to get back to my family. I need to get back to the other things in my life. And a lot of times that means nothing has changed. So for the other side, that just means wait it out you know, they'll eventually go away. Mm, mm. Let's have a moment of silence on that one. I want to say that the simple asking 
right? If you really did ask, what is the defined outcome we want? One would hope that very quickly you would think, oh, well, maybe we need to talk to Black people or brown people, what outcome do you want? (laughs) And how can we be of service to that? Right. So what you're what I hear you saying is like, wow, by by adding a defined outcome within that group of, say, white people on the court that want the towns coming together idea, so to speak, if one was going to come up with a defined outcome, one would think, oh, we need to bring people that are not white into that conversation and how brilliant and yet quite a big pivot from what you're saying, the expended energy. Absolutely. And it's uh, to be clear, it's all parties involved, all of these stakeholders, everyone. And and that's that is all of us, no matter what color you are, uh, needs to be involved in that conversation. Um, Because if you, you know, I, I yeah, the protests that I mentioned, um, it's, it's not just um, white people. Um, there are people of color, color who protested. In sure. Elizabeth City, North Carolina, there was a man who was killed um, last year. And for many weeks, there were protests uh, and marches for that. And um, I didn't follow that one as closely. But the question I would ask is, you know, whether or not they were able to achieve their goals, whether their goals were, were clearly defined. Um, it's always a challenge uh, mm. to uh, one to get people to come out, but when you're s- successful in doing that, like you've generated a lot of energy. Now there needs to be a strategy on how we're going to apply all the energy we've amassed. And without that, then we, you know, there is a risk of things just kind of falling to the side. I wanted to say, I really hear your science engineering self talking, you know, in terms of like, we have this amount of velocity, this, you know, bodies come together, right, with a a defined focus, that amount of energy actually has a greater impact, because that's the law of mechanics, right? That's the law of, (laughs) that's what I hear when you're describing this, because you're just talking about it in relation to people, but it's very relevant to your mastery in terms of like, how your career, how you've studied. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. It's, It's still physics. (laughs) <laughs> I like to bring that back because oftentimes it's very easy to get uh, swept into beliefs and opinions as opposed to just hearing a law that you're talking about. You're talking about we bring mass amount of people together um, towards, you know, if that amount of energy is dissipated versus focused, you know, scientific law dictates there's a formula for that, right? It's not, it's not a belief system. Don't get got caught up on one side or the other. And that's what I'm trying to clarify about what you're saying is you're, you're talking about systematic, systematic change and not just dissipating our energy and going home with saying, I got one for the history books to tell my kids, but rather, wow, how is this actually creating real change in people's lives who, when they go home, Mm -hmm. There is no stopping when you get tired if if you're not in a white body. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the um, a, a funny um, anecdote that crosses my mind is, um, you know, a lot of us have gone to the beach, stood in the in the waves, and then sometimes this big wave would come through and it would knock us over. So that amount of energy, that amount of water, but so much water, more water falls from the sky with rain, but we've never been knocked over by rain. Mm. Mm. I love that. (laughs) I love that. 
being intentional with the form that we're taking, right? Yes. So That's that when we come important. together, when we come together, defined clear outcome supports the um, mag, the um, exponential magnitude of what all of us coming together can create, the impact mm-hmm. and the amplification. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we look at, um, I guess right now at this time, we are fighting. Um, I think we're all fighting for our humanity. You know, when I look at uh, what's happening in the U.S., uh, what's happening in the world, um, it's it's a humongous fight. And uh, if we don't win this fight, we lose our humanity. And maybe we lose our lives, all of us. Uh, there's, you know, talk of uh, Russia launching um, nuclear weapons. And then if that happens, everybody launches. Um, so th- th- it's a... It's literally a fight for our lives. Um, and one of the strategies that you use when, def- when fighting is you divide the enemy. You divide the enemy and then you're able to come. And that's exactly where we are in the U.S. right now. And um, I think, um, you know, people are feeling marginalized. Um, they are susceptible to the language of fear and hatred and um, because they feel like that relates to them more, or they, they, they hear words that make them feel like um, they're understood. And then um, there's also, there are also others who feel righteous. They feel, well, you know, they're not on the side of hatred, so they, they must be right. And so uh, they are implementing their strategies without getting others together. So it's, um, mm-hmm. You're working on somebody's behalf, but you're not including them in the conversation, not including them in the planning. And I think that's that also leads to some of the um, lesser effectiveness of the efforts that we see going on. Can you give any examples on that to kind of um, illustrate it for us? Mm. Well, I, I think the um, what we're just talking about with the um, Black Lives Matter um, protests um, that's a good example of uh, people who, and, and I would say there's nothing wrong with the um, with the intention, you know, in terms of righteousness, but um, you do need to include all of the stakeholders who are involved in that. Uh, who, and that's everybody, because like I said, you know, we're, right now we're talking about um, Black Lives Matters, but um, you can see and feel that um, there's a, there's a um, systematic approach to uh, knocking down group after group, um, people, people of color, um, uh, gays and Latin, um, gays and um, what is it? I forget the, uh, the, um, you mean the LGBTQ? Yeah, LGBTQ. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what I hear you saying is just like the, the, on a larger scale to divide everybody apart means that there's less and less unity. So we have less and less force to really meet the destruction of the humanity that's really at stake. Cause if everybody's divided and only fighting for themselves, then we're losing that collective awareness of what's the larger um, systemic. Yeah. And there's also sometimes this um, a false sense of, well, I'm safe. I mean, one thing that sort of jumped ahead by white list. people. Do you, f- I'm just trying was, to get clear on, on what we're talking to, about. Yeah. I was going to say uh, one thing that sort of happened uh, 
or is happening sooner than I expected is, you know, the, the um, chopping down of Roe versus Wade. Um, that's something that, so women, I, I won't say that women felt safe. I, I remember the protests back in 2016. Um, so in the, when suddenly a person has been elected who has verbally um, made statements that were very much um, offensive to women. An assault, an assault on, and, right, on the feminine absolutely, body. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and the, the question was, how could this have happened? How can we accept that here's a person who is going to be the leader, and yet he has um, no reverence for, the, the, for women? And so um, um, at this time, it, was, it, kind of, it did take me by surprise that that um, effort with Roe versus Wade of what is happening right now, and I don't think it has been, I, I guess it should be, uh, we should know it any day now um, within the next few weeks. Um, I mean, that, we're, right, there's that, right? And then there's just all the recent, um, you know, just planned and targeted attacks specifically on, mm-hmm. on Black people and, you know, just the different ways that the media conveys, you know, a white killer and then the way the police officers take him in versus all the black bodies like that in juxtaposition to what's happening with the disruption of women's rights. What's is this? Are you kind of getting at it like this is how people are getting divided into their own personal cause as opposed to seeing the larger destruction of human of the humanity of ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there, I look at it as these are many fronts that are being assaulted. Yes. And, um, and different people are being, uh, I guess, different fronts are being assaulted at different times. So um, what would be amazing is if every front uh, was fought in the same way, everyone was fighting on every front. Uh, so, um, so when people of color are attacked, there's a strategic plan of this is how we're going to respond to this. And then when a, a person, an LGBTQ person is, is involved in an attack, that, that same effort is now turned to that. So, um, and what I mean by that is that we're coming together as opposed to allowing these um, fronts to be um, separate and individual. So what, what happens is uh, people relax and say, well, you know, that I need to take care of what's happening to me and my community. And then, oh, something equally bad happened to another community, but I only have so much energy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Instead of seeing the larger tapestry that's being revealed, that all of this is really colonialism and imperialism playing out in a much larger force, right? And the narrative kind of plugs into so many different ways that marginalized groups of people get assaulted in the bodies of, of um, marginalized people will get assaulted in this space. I think that that's a part of the strategy, right, is to kind of confuse so everybody gets divided up and kind of only kind of takes care of self. It's like that's reminds me of like colonialism at its finest individual first. Right. Yeah. I'll take care of mine, you know. Right. It's and it needs a a, it it needs leadership. It needs leadership. Um, Leadership. It would be amazing if the leadership came from our government. And, and the standpoint of this is a war that we're fighting. Um, it's not like the wars of the past. This is more like guerrilla warfare 
where small groups are able to make a big impact because now we're fighting terrorism. So we don't need to take down a whole community. We just need to scare them into inactivity. So you're you're saying terrorism and we're talking about white supremacy actions. Is, is Absolutely. It, right. And so I really want to point out that right now we're on the, the heels of um, the recent grocery store shooting shooting where, you know, 13 people were sh- shot, I believe, and 10 got killed. And, you know, this really targeted white supremacist act that is an act of terrorism that on a public level, on a governmental level, on a leadership level, as you're saying, is not being acknowledged for what it is, an act of terrorism. And as which then means it's already displaying a a dissipation of leadership to to use the right language to call it what Mm -hmm. it is so that we can then move forward with a plan of action. Without having that, it's got to be that much more confusing, but more than that, terrorizing to be in a black body, to know that, wow, this is happening ever. We're talking about little cells. It is very terrorism because it's little cells popping up, which means anyone at any time, if you're in a black or brown body, could be assaulted anywhere. Right. And it's not only, you know, you said it's it's cells. Each time there's one person who is, you know, takes a fall for this. It's not this group or that okay so so it, it's not just cells uh these are individuals who are being um designated as this is the person who um who um led this effort of, of um terrorism so one person goes down for an event a, a, a um a cause and that but a cell is made up of multiple people and so where are the others and what was the greater scheme of the plan what was the tra- strategy that was involved and this cell is attached to other cells so there there's a much more complex attack going on and yet we're you know from our standpoint and from what we see of our government activity it's addressed as oh there was an, another uh, standalone event but these are not standalone events they're not only not standalone events, but they're not even being called terrorism attacks. They're right. being called mass shootings. They're being they're they're deflecting because it's a white body that's assaulting Muslims or assaulting Chinese people or assaulting black people or assaulting whatever the next assault is. But more and more, we're witnessing public executions of black and brown bodies and not having it named what it is. Right. And I hear what you're saying, but that's not even what's we haven't even got the basis publicly for that acknowledgement. So how could real change come if we can't even have it named right. The rhetoric is still so racist and yes. non-unacknowledging. Mm-hmm. So how does that, what, what happens in your body with that? Because this is active and alive today. Well, it, it's, um, it, it, it's sort of a, um, it's an, it's an emotional kill because this isn't something that's new. This is something that has been going on for so long. And so as I you know, talked about um, seeing the people protesting and, and sort of having a viewpoint from just my lifetime of how this goes, you know, people show up until they burn out. Um, in this case, until there's a, a uh, nationwide strategy to deal with this, it's just going to keep happening. And so for me to expect to have my body to feel any other way is not congruent to my experiences. Meaning to feel any other way than hypervigilant or like what is the state that happens in you when this is happening present day and you know that on a government level, 
these this cellular cell network is happening on a police level this cell network is happening mm-hmm. with, you know it's infiltrated in all these levels of society it's not just this 18 year old individual who kind of got this wacko idea because he's right. obviously painting the picture that there's there's entire big money behind it right there's whole mm-hmm. history and it's also tapping a somatic historical memory that lives in the bodies of black people and the bodies of indigenous people and the bodies of white people. I want to kind of make the equation to like the whistle call. It might not seem as threatening, but it's extremely threatening because it's exposing itself. Absolutely. In plain sight. And there's nothing you can do about it. Kind of energy. Yes, uh, exactly. There's nothing. So the, the feeling is, you know, there's a lot of talk about this. Um, there are, you know, there, it's reported on each of the different media stations. And at the same time, the verbiage that is used is the same, repeated again and again and again. And um, eventually that has no energy at all. So one of the things that we used to hear, um, you know, some time ago, and I think this is mostly changed now, but I, I even back then, I'm, I mean, like, you know, 20 years ago when there'd be some type of incident and the, you'd hear on every media station, the hearts of the, the, the hearts and minds of the U.S. go out to blah, 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 <laughs> you know, this family or that community. Um, well, at some point, what does that mean? Why, why would you even say that? And and who does that, what does that pacify? Because you've made that statement. Now we can move on to the next, the, you know, the next story. Mm, mm. What does that pacify? That's a really good question, an inquiry for white bodies. What does that pacify inside? When we display the, you know, prayers going out for you. But what, you know, what about the inquiry of what does it mean to live with this amount of terror in your body as a state of normal? Well, I don't know. I don't know because I've never, not in my lifetime, I've never had to, I've never been in a place where I did not have to live with that level of terror. Thank you. Because I was asking the white people listening, but that's exactly the echo that we need to hear if we inhabit white bodies is, you don't have a before experience. All you know is a state of your high functioning in places and spaces that have never, ever been safe. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's well said. I know we started this conversation, we kind of went out there in the sense of like talking about the movement and whether it was BLM or protesting or historical, um, and then kind of brought it to the kind of the, the pinnacle of what's happening present day and that it's, this is ongoing terror, acts of terrorism that are unacknowledged. And I guess what I want to move in the direction of is, is getting a sense to feel you and your personal life experience of, of achieving what you've achieved, you know, going to the schools that you were probably one of a few um, in spaces of mostly whiteness in seas of whiteness and achieving at levels that um, we often don't see, um, even though there's 
countless stories of historical, well-educated, Black, Indigenous, like all sorts of high intellectual studies of, of inventors and medical doctors and, and engineers, all these things, but we don't see that. So as a part of our own unconscious narrative, you become this unique, well-educated Black man. And that is an untrue narrative. I want to say that out loud because there's historically plenty of very well-educated, in fact, the history of our science and math come in rooted in African culture. And I just, we don't get that. So we don't get to learn that and know what to, how and to, to discover more of that. And it's a part of us breaking apart false narratives of our own indoctrination. So I just want to point the lens back on you as a personal human. As a person who's just, I don't, we don't know you. Where did you grow up? And what was it like? Like, how did you end up here? And just give us a pierce into you and what it was like to, um, to be you in spaces like Massachusetts or in the schools you've chosen that um, there weren't a lot of um, other black men like you, perhaps. Yeah, um, that's a great. So I grew up in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And that's a community that, uh, or my community, um, there were not, I, I didn't grow up knowing a lot of, um, I, I should say, amongst my peers, I did not have a, a, a good number of peers to, and peers being uh, people of color, Black men, Black boys as we were, um, who were striving to be um, overachievers. There were a few, but the number was very and so um, in that environment, those of us, who, there were many of us who were uh, trying hard, but it, also, it often took you out of the, the group of uh, being cool or being the, um, you know, the, 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 the guys who were um, okay, were, um, you know, fun to be around. You were kind of in the odd crowd in that case. And um, it was a struggle to avoid that. It's, you know, nobody wants to be an outcast. And um, when I look back on my childhood, I see so many people, so many of the, the men that I went to school with, so many of the uh, women I went to school with, and this is back, you know, third grade and, and going up through high school, we did not understand how to support each other in changing our lives, uh, improving our lives. So there are a lot of ways I look back on my childhood, and I think my parents were a big part of me uh, taking the the narrow course that I did. And um, also, you know, being in the high school band, which was not a cool thing back then, but it, <laughs> um, it, was, a, it was a group of people who were really close and, and came together. Um, it was a place where, um, you know, the Blacks and Whites were together in the band and became we were together to the point that we were friends. We went off to our band camp and we had these strange experiences being, um, you know, sometimes vulnerable experiences, sometimes embarrassing experiences where you a lot of your walls started to come down as to, um, you know, the, the projections that we put out as how we're cool and, and the images we wanted other people to see in us. Um, once you find yourself in vulnerable situations, being out in camp, camping out in the woods, um, a lot of that just kind of falls away and you're just, you know, for somebody who's, you know, 14, 15, 16, you're surviving. So um, you develop friendships that are real friendships, regardless of color. And so um, that was 
you know, those are some of the things that helped me. And I think uh, for, for some of the others, it may have been sports or other activities. But I look back at so many people who now I, I, I realize that they were brilliant at our young ages. And um, they, didn't, they, were, they didn't have the or find the thing that they would have um, picked them up and helped them to get out of that, that mindset, that environment. And so um, people chose, had different um, choices in their lives from that point. But some of them, I realized that, wow, if we could have had someone to talk to all of us and just had us to be kinder to each other and to understand each other instead of, well, if, if we're all making fun of that guy, then I'm safe. And so it, it really was a struggle. And it's something I think about often because there are a lot of people who are really smart and intelligent who didn't have the opportunities that I had because of the way that my parents made sure that, you know, regardless how I felt about it, that these were the things I was going to do. Talking about the support system, right? Where you're encouraged and, and uh, you're pointed and and delighted in and a light shine on you that, that helps you get through these obstacles, um, especially when they're systemic, right? Because in those years, it's like your parents, you know, if you didn't have any parents that had this kind of like, we're going to, you have to be 10 times stronger. You have to work 10 times harder. If you didn't get that talk, then the amount of obstacles because of the systemic uh, institutional abuse taking place, how would you get over that? You you needed a shoulder to stand on to see beyond you, right? Exactly. That's a very good way to put it because we couldn't see those back then. Uh, For me, it felt like I have to be home by a certain time and I can't stay out and have fun with my friends. Give us a time frame of what year you're talking about to context and history for people. Oh, I will go back to, um, this is back in the seventies uh, when I was um, nine years old. And so finally I was old enough to uh, ride my bike, uh, leave home on my bike and I could leave my street and go to the next neighborhood. And, but I had to, at some point I had to check in every hour. So I could be out having my fun with my friends, but I had to come back home. And, and this was before cell phones. So mm-hmm. checking in meant you actually had to go all the way back home <laughs> and, um, and then say hi to my mom. And then I could go again. And, and I always wondered, like, why, why can't I just stay with my friends? My, they all knew that, you know, David has to go home. And, His parents um, are strict, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and, but you know, in hindsight, even though it didn't make any sense to me back then, that was important. Well said. And I also want to just point out that what you're talking about is the importance of that family unit, right? The black family unit that was so critical through, you know, six days and then into the seventies and eighties, there ended up being actual governmental policies that worked at, you know, breaking apart that family unit to erode the role of the, the black man in the family. And there's a lot of, we're not going to go into it on this episode, but I, I want you to hear that, that this was intentionally targeted because, you know, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, there was there was this kind of like strong family unit and communities of families coming together to build black enterprise and black community to say, hey, we don't we're not going to go out there and look, ask for your help anymore. We're going to just do it. But countless times, these communities and these families were actually targeted, burned, destroyed in the name of rhetoric around usually a white woman's cry 
but also a lot of other things that really prevented that family unit from staying together. And I'm just pointing it out because you're highlighting it that even in the 70s, there were plenty of kids that were your peers that didn't have that. And so we all know that by the 70s, there was already Jim Crow. There was already long histories of slavery. We're talking about so many systemic obstacles that would prevent little black boys from having tar, you know, high dreams of becoming anything other than these kind of allotments in life. It took families to do what you got. And this is the appreciation I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of the, uh, when you have a household where there's one parent working, um, there needs to be a care system for the kids. Um, and care can be just monitoring, just to make sure they're not uh, getting into trouble or getting into things that, um, you know, could be bigger than they are. And so um, doesn't necessarily mean, um, so, you know, having a two-parent household where both parents don't have to be at work at the same time is helpful. Um, but we've also lost um, the art of having a community that takes care of all the kids. Yeah, and, and I want to say that we haven't lost it as much as we are dismembered from it. Um, you know, that the remembrance very much still lives in us because it's our nature, right? We're social connected beings. But because we have so many layers of um, assault and fragmentation that we live through, we don't have a sense of that wholeness and that level of connection. So I really do appreciate what you're saying. It sounds like this early years is what's fostered this high level ambition in you. It wasn't just you. It was like, you look back and you kind of pull in, like there were other forces that were helping me have bigger, bigger goals in mind that I would have, than I would have ever had for myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it was almost given to me uh, in that way. Uh, not so much what the specific goals were, but that the, I, I guess I'd say the work ethic, the, um, the knowing that I was going to change things, things were going to be a certain way as I grew up and then to figure out what did that look like? Um, going off to college, for example, and deciding what, um, you know, what, what I was going to study. Uh, that was something that, that was not a conversation I had uh, sitting around the, you know, with, with my friends as we're, as we're out biking and hanging out in the neighborhood. <laughs> um, it was just a, a different, um, different environment. Who did so, you have that conversation with? Oh, just my parents. Um, this was something that, uh, and I, I think there were, um, yeah, I would say that it was not a conversation to be had, even amongst uh, my friends who also went out, went to college and, and you know, follow their own ambitions and created big things. At least I was not in a circle of uh, where we had those conversations together. It's like we were more stovepiped. Tell us some of what your parents said to you? Well, one of the things that was very helpful for me um, is we, the house that I grew up in was in one of the worst neighborhoods in our city at that time. And um, because of that, at a very young age, and I would say six, seven years old, I saw the effects of drugs on older people. Um, I guess teens and um, people in their 20s. And I saw the negative effects of those. And, and it was scary. So it was scary enough that I never had the desire to take that path. Um, I think for those who did not see that, um, to experiment, to explore things, 
um, may have been a little bit more enticing or interesting. Are you talking about particular drugs that were um, on the streets that you were seeing? Yes, but I have no idea what they were. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, have I was no just idea. contexting because I think in, in the 70s, it would probably be heroin. But then by the 80s, it could easily turn into like the crack mm-hmm. epidemic. Right. And I, I'm really just speaking these out loud because, you know, the, these slaughtered entire communities and these things aren't by accident. So you're giving us a lens from a different point of view, like, mm-hmm. it's like oh, I saw that as a kid and that kind of changed the landscape of my life because I didn't right. want to go in that direction. Well, it, it was a big impact on me that, that I had that opportunity to be that close to it and, and so removed. Yes. And so, um, and I don't think that's a common um, uh, experience for people. Yes. Uh, usually if you're in it, you have no choice, but to be in it, it kind of invades your life, whether it's something that's coming to you directly or coming to someone who's close to you and eventually filters down to you. But uh, in my case, we happened to live there, and it was a neighborhood of uh, wonderful people. All of my neighbors were wonderful. This was uh, the drug element was one that came into our neighborhood because that was where the operations took place. But they were not people who lived in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was a uh, and 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 I also um, credit that my both of my parents were school teachers. So there was uh, because they knew and had taught many of the people who were hanging out in the streets. There was a um, a level of respect that they had for my parents and my family. So um, as I grew up there, everyone there was no one who was going to approach me to try to convince me to to try any of this stuff. So you know, looking back, all of that was kind of a a, a miracle. It's it's a, a a perfect storm of things to come together to um, help propel me out of that into something. Um, I'll say something that was different. I didn't know what at that time, but I knew it wouldn't be that. Yeah. And in what you just said, you're really highlighting the community aspect of your growing up. You know, you're talking about because, and this is really an important um, piercing into Black community and Black culture that I don't think a lot of white people have a richness of experience to even Mm -hmm. comprehend because um, I don't know if a lot of Besides, you know, I did grow up in in a spiritual community, but most white people, let's say, don't. And I don't feel like that same level of um, I got your back. I know who your parents are. These levels of respect that really happens in culture and what you're talking about, the erosion of that. That wasn't by accident and that wasn't Mm -hmm. the fault of black people. This is a systemic assault from, in my opinion, a governmental level on communities and, and the family networks that make community because historically the black community has rebuilt itself again and then rebuilt itself again and then i mean just the the culture and the the reinvention and the art and the music and the power and the not that that keeps coming out of black communities after every assault is astounding the more i learn the more astounded i am in the in the process of healing complex trauma so i wanted to again just highlight what you're talking about of how your parents were respected. So nobody came to you because they knew better than to cross that line. That was a, a community cultural experience. Absolutely. And um, it, it was one where I felt safe in my neighborhood. Like, mm-hmm. even though these were the people who were, um, you know, so now I'm talking about the people who were actually involved in the drugs and selling right. drugs, but they right. were, um, it, it was a safe space for me to be um, just because of the the relationship there between, uh, or the respect, the level of respect with my parents. So um, all of that came together. It, it really was a perfect storm 
of um, events, um, circumstances, uh, perfect storm of uh, community, the way that community is created. You would think normally uh, that element, the, you know, the drugs and all is an element that comes to tear down your community or tear down your family. But in my case, it was more of a support system. It was a wall, a, a boundary uh, that mm-hmm. was not to be crossed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, what are some of the other things your parents told you along the way? Uh, um, I think uh, the other part I would say about my parents is they, uh, they, you know, they both gave us a very good work ethic, but they allowed us to be open and free in our activities and our choices. And I think that was important. They, they really, they didn't define, this is what you're going to do. Um, I knew I was going to go to college. That was something that I had the feeling growing up that it was not my choice. I could not choose not to go to college. Uh, however, that was the non-negotiable, right? <laughs> <laughs> however, um, there was no, um, there was no prescription beyond that. So, um, you know, whether I wanted to go to be a doctor or, um, an architect or a computer scientist, or, you know, the, the field was open. I just had, I just had to meet one requirement. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you can't stay home. You're going somewhere. <laughs> Are there other aspects of your experience that you'd like to highlight in, um, in the context mm. of, of well-meaning whiteness of well-meaning white people, you know, mm. you obviously went moved from, you said South Carolina. North Carolina. North Carolina. You said you moved from North Carolina at some point. You obviously, you know, moved to um, mm-hmm. other environments where you were probably surrounded by more white people than not. Mm-hmm. Um, and just anything that you want to share, really, it's is a piercing into your 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 lived experience. Well, I, yeah. So I think it's um, you know the last two years has been a huge eye opener for me because. Just as uh, you've pointed out to your audience that there are things that white people didn't understand about black people and um, that, that these things need to be, this conversation needs to take place. Uh, there was also a just as big of an awareness uh, for black people. And I'll speak for myself. There are so many things that I learned over the last two years that people around me, people who are close to me who are white, um, did not know. And my mind was blown because I thought um, this was that everybody knew this. A lot of it had to do with um, seeing things. And I'm trying to think of an exa- a specific example, but um, I, I guess thinking about the um, when George Floyd was killed, some of the responses that I heard really blew my mind. And these were not from you know these are from the well-meaning um, white people. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, so the other people who are well-intentioned, but the justifications or even just the, you know, saying how they understood this happened at a time. So, so George Floyd was killed. Uh, his crime was passing off a fake $20 bill uh, in a liquor store um, at a time when so many, this was, um, was this April or May? This was May. Um, at the time, as the beginning of the pandemic, there was a government shutdown, like a, a um, mandatory shutdown for so many companies. And so people are not working. Everyone is in dire need. The government had promised stipends, and they were doing a horrible job of getting them out, which means 
at the time he was killed, you know, there's probably a check on us on its way to him, but it hadn't gotten there yet. And he was, and so in one way you can say passing off a fake $20 bill by a father of four at a time when the government is not doing what it needs to do to get money so that we can all survive. It was, it hit me that the um, people were understanding, but there was so much more to see in this. And the fact that all of this was recorded, I had bigger expectations that um, I guess that this would be seen more clearly. Um, Can I pause you? Can I pause you? If I'm hearing you correctly, I'm hearing that you're saying at that time there was language from well-meaning white people that blew your mind around the fact that, that he had counterfeited this $20 bill, like whatever, as if that act equaled what's happening, something around that nature. Yes. And even, um, even that, and and some things about his past, I heard um, a lot of things brought up about his, about drugs and all this stuff, but, um, and that, None of that justified um, the moment, you know, having him to be killed for what, you know, what this crime was. And um, Pause. Think- and to have it publicly displayed that a, a his head is on the ground and all of the vulgarity of it. What I want to say that ruptured through my body as I list, as I watched it, I was literally I literally turned it off and said, we're watching a public lynching. And I could feel the historical memory and the volatility that moved up in my body and the inhumanity of it. And no matter what was added to his background, his reasoning, there was nothing that I needed to hear that could equal the inhumanity that I witnessed. And I'm saying that because what you're saying is, the amount of rhetoric and language around anything other exactly than that we're watching somebody be lynched publicly in 2020 mm-hmm. and that's enough period that should have been enough and it wasn't yes and you're hearing all of these other and what bothers me and i think this is what you're saying is it's spewing of language that's the that's the media narrative that then people don't even think about what they're saying. They're just spewing it out. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the fact that this was actually caught on camera, um, this is something that um, I wonder. And even even the, the so this, the, you know, the trial went as we had hoped it would go. But still, um, the outcome of that trial was not the outcome of someone who you know if had this been reversed um <laughs> this would have been a death a whole... penalty quick exactly know? exactly quick. so so um you know there's still within this country a tolerance is not the right word but a desire to see um to see the better in someone who a, a person a white person uh, someone who's not a person of color And that's not something that, you know, we're viewed completely different for people of color. Uh, So, you know, with going back to things like, um, you know, all the things that Trump has gotten away with, you know, one of the latest things was um, the, he was penalized for, held in contempt 
for not turning over a certain amount of materials. And then I, last week, they, um, re- they took back, they, they held back the penalty for the contempt, even before he had delivered all the materials. Like, when does that ever happen? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even after you've delivered um, whatever the materials are, you would expect that they will still withhold, uh, you know, removing the contempt charge until they are ready and satisfied that they have what they need. So, like, we have two different, uh, at least two different um, um, ways of, of looking at and justifying or, or having justice for different people. And um, this is something that it brought, it came to my attention in a different way because before, I'll go back to um, the Rodney King beating. Before that moment, there was a way that I could say, oh, nobody knows, nobody believes us. So um, this is why things happen. But now there's been so much recorded on videotape and still nothing has changed in that matter. Hmm. So what does that do inside you? I almost don't know. Because as I said, um, you know, even before we were recording these incidents, I knew they were true. Because I'd been around at different times and seen things. It was just at that time, uh, there was there was a feeling that if we could prove this, it, the feeling was that reason that we're not getting justice because we can't prove it. We don't have, you know, at that time, there was no such thing as, you know, capturing somebody on cell phone. But um, the idea, at least going back to, what was that, 92, was yeah. if we could have caught this on video, then they would know and things would change. And now that's proving totally false over and over because everything's getting cut on video. And, you know, this most recent shooting, he's live streaming it. He's publishing his manifesto publicly. There's whole, you know, networks that are, you know, outwardly speaking about white supremacy. And and, and what I want to really just, again, pause and have listeners hear is that, you know, the historical nature of kind of like this, this underground network that is against black bodies and native indigenous bodies. And when we talk about against, we're talking about, you know, assaults on their humanity, you know, that, that, that the body, there's a instinctual historical terror and that terror lives in all of us. It's not just in black bodies. It's very much in white bodies too. But we have to do that level of inquiry in our own body to realize, wow, our ancestry was on the other side of that lynching, was on the other side of that terror. Even if our body was a terror, too, and didn't want that to happen, our silence was a part of that narrative. Our coming up with a story that justified it was a part of that story. So we have to stop and say, wow, what is coming out of my mouth that is justifying the repeated brutalization of black and brown bodies and making that okay? Absolutely. And how am I participating in letting it be okay through performative things like maybe just marching? Well intent, but the fizzle out and we get to go back home when we're tired and be safe in our car and safe in our home and safe in the grocery store because we inhabit a white body. And black people never get to go home and be tired. And the terror continues. And not only is it historically remembered, but the historical memory is amplified on the present day terror. 
So we're talking about exponential amount of non-safety. Right. And this is a somatic lived experience. This is not a figment of imagination. This is how the nervous system holds this memory. And yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's well said. Um, You know, so you you ask, how does this resonate in my body? Um, One of the, uh, I had this conversation with someone recently and um, one of the things that does stand out, the way this presents itself in my body is there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of, and it's it's not hatred. Uh, It's anger about the situation, about the, um, how the situation has continued to repeat. Yeah. And the, the, one of the main differences, because, you know, you and I are both part of communities who talk about emotional release and how we remove this trauma around in our bodies and, and how we are able to do work and focus on the physical aspect of the trauma located in certain parts of our body. But um, one of the things that uh, comes as part of being black is where do you express that anger? Like, it's not something that, um, you know, I I sometimes watch videos of, um, I've seen several videos of um, a, a white man who talks about this is, you know, this is why you're having the experience you're having as a black person. It's not racism. You're pulled over by a cop. You have rights. This is what you say to, and and they can say some things that as I'm listening, they just strike me as absurd to, to demand to a police officer that these are your rights. You cannot do, you know, these such a things. And we see repeatedly many times, you know, you can Google YouTube and see so many uh, examples of what happens when a person of color um, does try to take that approach. Um, and, you know, thankfully all of them don't end in, you know, someone being shot, but um, they never end in, you know, the officer saying, you know, backing down from that, it always escalates. And so uh, just to have anger to carry that in my body to, and not have a place to uh, to express that in a healthy way. Um, in a healthy way at the, in healthy way, I mean, um, express it at the situation, at the person, at the uh, environment that is causing the anger. Because, um, you know, we can all go, um, go home and then you turn that on your families. And that was a whole history of, of uh, what was happening at one point as well. But um, in your life, not in my life, not okay, in my you're just life. Saying, you're just saying in general. Okay. That, right, if but we're that, not, if we don't know how to process our pain and our anger, we blow it through other people right. because we don't have an outlet for it. Sure. Right. And that could be a whole other conversation. It sure can. Um, <laughs> and and um, so, so um, without having that, without being able to express the anger in that way, a lot of times I find out, I find that even doing these emotional release exercises in a yoga class or in a tantra class, um, I have to, um, my, my anger has to go through a certain lens. So it can't be at the thing I'm really angry about. It has to be at something else. It has to be tapered down to something that will fit in that environment. Otherwise, I don't even know what would happen. Like, um, I don't even mm. know that I'm contained myself enough to, to let go in a place like that. Mm. Wow. Profound, profound. 
what I hear you saying is that these spaces may not be a safe space for the anger that you're really feeling. Absolutely. That that container may not be able to hold that. That container has no idea what it's asking when it says, hey, we're going to do this exercise right now. Um, thank you for that. And I want to really speak to this and um, see if you you kind of you get turned on in, in this direction. You're talking about um, sex positive spaces, right? Spiritual exploration spaces that talk about somatic presencing, locating where certain emotions and historical traumas live in our body, specifically in our sex. So when we're exploring in conscious sex positive spaces, Below the surface is, you know, the way the language kind of nebulates out is, you know, using language like trauma and energy. And, the, and while that's wonderful, it's not always in a, in a depth of trauma informed understanding of the, the historical nature of, say, black and white bodies inhabiting mm-hmm. the same space, talking about sex and black and white bodies and just all of the baggage for lack of a better word it's really just historical weight that hasn't been metabolized or processed and it's kind of brewing and i know from being in similar uh, sex positive spaces with you and inquiry there aren't always a lot of black men black women uh, even other people of color there's a, s- a small majority a handful of five that usually end up being tokenized in these spaces and for lack of a better word, fetishized in these spaces. And that can go both ways, but we're specifically highlighting that the spaces are majority white, well-meaning people inquiring about conscious sexuality, conscious spirituality, how to inhabit their body and heal their trauma. And yet within these spaces, you're talking about, whoa, I don't think I could really go with the eruption, my body is really wanting. Exactly. Exactly. And um, because you're a black man in that space. Yes. Yes. So, and, and one, I guess there's several different things to to talk about with that. And one Mm -hmm. way is one, one part of that is um, that I don't know that I have a place to go to, to really get to the bottom and clean out the way that I believe that I could in these spaces. Uh, you know, th- th- this is the teaching that you clear everything out of your system and then you live free. <laughs> um, That's what they say. That's what they say. <laughs> oh, those, those gurus and tantra teachers. They say, <laughs> I know that all too well. Yeah. And, and the other side of that, and this is a, a, a good thing is because, because of that, I've learned to hold my, myself differently. And so, you know, this is, this comes from, um, you know, some are, some of our shadows, our shadows as we get into this work, or even just in our regular everyday lives, you know, a lot of us have this anger that's buried down inside and we don't want to believe that it's just the same, the same exact conversation we're just having about racism and and white people who don't want to believe they're racist. Um, You know, many of us have this anger down inside, but we don't want to believe that we're that kind of person. So and, and we completely shut ourselves off from that. The danger is when we are in a situation and we're triggered there, because we have not, we, don't, we deny that part of ourselves. We deny that it exists. When it comes out, it comes out in a way that we're not even familiar with it. And we do things um, that we never knew we were capable of. And then so afterwards, we make the excuses that, 
you know, I don't know what happened or I was angry or there's an excuse that's made as opposed to taking ownership of this is what I did. And one, so this is the, the plus, uh, the plus thing, the plus side for um, having this experience, not being able to express my anger is I have to know myself. So I have to know that, yeah, I'm angry and I'm really angry. And I, I could, you know, I don't know. I could, I could, um, you know, nuclear blast the whole world, whatever. <laughs> Not going to say anything realistic, but um, but knowing that, I can also say I choose not to. And I think that is a huge step because um, when I'm with someone, it I don't need to be. Um, it doesn't need to be that I'm not angry at them or I'm not angry at someone else. I'm in control of myself because I still have my choice. Mm. I am and. Mm. Mm. I hear you speaking of discernment. Absolutely. And on this trauma healing journey of, of learning to re-inhabit ourselves and, and pull us, pull ourselves out of the cultural context and conditioning um, that breeds us for lack of a better word, um, it's an act of discernment to know whether a space can hold all of you or if it's actually a level of self-preservation and protection to say, I'm going to give you what y'all are ready for. And I'm going to give y'all what I'm ready for. You know, it's like, it's like a, a sweet dance. It's not judging what the environment is more saying, huh, my system doesn't feel fully safe to fully unleash all of that. But I, there, there are parts of me available at play here. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hear you doing. And yeah, and I, I would say it's even um, it's even you know even a, a, a less enthusiastic than that. In that, mm. um, it, it's not just I'm going to give you what I think you're ready for. It's mm. um, because I'm looking at this environment and I'm feeling that you don't mean me because like what I see you prepared to handle, I don't feel whether it's true or not. I don't feel that you're ready for what my experience has been and that you've been as a black man. Yes. And you, I don't feel that you're ready to reach in and touch that part of me. And, and I'd say even um, black women, you know, we, I've gone, been to uh, different uh, workshops and uh, retreats and things. And we've had conversations with black women as well. And yes. um, sometimes we would go off together and we'll sort of like compare notes and we say, Oh, that's okay. Got it. And then, then we're good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, you know, these three things aren't going to make sense. This is why this has been my experience. Mm, um, mm, mm. The importance of this, of what you're saying is that like, wow. in a lot of these quote healing spaces, whether it's Tantra or other spiritual healing development spaces, that it's not exactly safe. And there's camaraderie around with other black people that, you, you can get something from this, but not fully because of this and this. And, and yes. it's kind of like a, a mutual acknowledgement. Right. Interesting. Yes. yes. Yeah. And so um, the, the side effect to this and the, the part that is, that is, um, that really doesn't serve me. Um, it's, it's not particularly harmful, but it's, it doesn't help. It's not helpful at all is that I'm, at that point, instead of this being an experience, an opportunity for healing, it becomes just an exercise, just a game. Because I don't feel that I can bring all of what's needed in order to get to uh, whatever this level of healing is that is being presented or proposed. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're, uh, you're, you're, yeah, at that point, you're playing a game. Mm. It's like, it's like word games in the beginning to start a group, right? And, and it's yes. like, you want a certain level of intimacy, but not fully, because if you really wanted intimacy with all of me, some of the things that come out of your mouth in facilitating wouldn't be happening. Uh, um, I would say I have not been, you know, the, the level of vulnerability has not been set so that I feel free to bring that in. So I don't mm. know, you know, it may be that all that um, this will be an amazing place for me to do this work, but the, the environment, the setting has not been set yet to allow me to step into that. Mm. Mm. What do you, would you need that would be the indicator for you, for your body, Mm. that it's safe to go there in an environment? That, I I think, so, so I I think um, that would be something I would bring myself. And usually I, I lead with vulnerability. That's my, my, um, that's my recommendation. Um, However, in spaces where it feels that so many people are needing so much at such a surface level, then that's not, that doesn't feel like a place for me to really go deep and be vulnerable. Mm. This leads me to what you were talking about with your bio around um, really kind of bringing that as the space you are, are taking up space in or inhabiting and that helping sex positive communities understand the value of culture and, and, and the value of connecting more effectively in these spaces to support an, another level of depth of healing that not just black and BIPOC need, but we need, we desperately need as white bodies to go beyond our fragility and surface level of energy body inhabiting to really break apart our shared communal space of the assault of the black and brown body in our historical memory. Absolutely. I would say that in my experience um, and having conversations like this in these groups, um, I don't know that there, I don't feel in my body that there is even awareness and awareness that um, it's a different thing. You know, if you want to to have more uh, people of color in your group, then you, you know, you, you put a, um, you, um, you, you sent your Facebook page um, to a, a certain group that is, um, you know, they have some people of color there. So that's enough. It, the, the means of marketing, the means of outreach is the same, regardless of the, um, whether this is, you're reaching out to people of color or not. I don't believe that there is an awareness, a true awareness of why is it different to reach out to somebody of color? What experiences are they having that um, makes them come to one, you know, one event and then they don't come back? Like, like what's happening? There's not even, and I think there may be because there's so much energy and there's so much going on in the group that when one person doesn't come back, it's just one person who didn't come back. So there's not an awareness or even an, um, a curiosity about what experience did that person have? And why, when we have a group of 50 people, are there only one or two Blacks? And do I personally check in to find out like what was safe about that? What wasn't? Am I willing as a facilitator in these really vulnerable spaces that are uncovering, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about, you know, sex and the the regions of of 
masculine and feminine energy. So I find these spaces as, as disturbing as what you're talking about. Um, I want to be, be really transparent that I've unconsciously avoided these spaces because that bothered me so much, how much I felt like um, culture was being appropriated and then not acknowledged in the historical landscape of where this extraction comes from and what allows us as kind of like the privileged awake ones to be the givers of this knowledge. And in the language is like oneness, you know, we're all, all is energy. And so it's not an acknowledgement of, of what it really means to inhabit a certain type of body and to come with a certain type of historical pain living in the body, knowing that the ancestry of most of the people in that room were a part of the historical assault on your body. Like to, these spaces could be really perfect to unpack that level of complexity and convoluted pain when it comes to say the historical sexual nature of black men and white women and all the things that come with that. Right. But instead of unpacking it, right, it's just kind of glossed over and, and jumped right to oneness and, and using language of energy that, that all is, we're all on the equal plane and not checking in with the three people of color that might have been there to say, whoa, how did that land? Where did it go? Yeah, Was it right. safe? I, I hear you. It's like, wow. Yeah. The If you look at it in the sense of culture, maybe that's a good uh, lens to look at it, uh, yes. to use. Um, so if you have, a, um, let's say you do have 50 white people there, men and women, and then you have two black people, maybe that is two cultures. So you need to put 50% of your energy into, you know, the white side. But even though there are only two, you also need 50% of your energy there too in order to get these two to integrate. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah. But God, you're bringing up a question of culture. Does one of the problems and one of the reasons, at least I feel like highlighting whiteness and well-meaning whiteness is that, I don't know if a lot of white people have taken the time to acknowledge that um, there is an assumed standard of humanity that equals white culture, as if yes. everything is is in comparison to the standard of the white body, right, or the white consciousness, or the white lens, and so instead of breaking apart that misnomer and starting at an equal playing field, it's always there. And so a black body or an indigenous body is automatically going to feel that power dynamic and white people aren't yet enough, at least in my opinion, these well-meaning white whites to actually see that in us, like, holy fucking potato, like Jesus, 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 like, and this happened for me back in September. And it's like, I had to see myself in that category of well-meaning whiteness by accident in the sense that, well, I grew up outside of mainstream America. I grew up with this Indian name and an Indian culture. So I inhabited other spaces. I didn't inhabit main white stream space. I was kicked out of those spaces. We were the weird ones. But it doesn't make me any less white. It just makes me different in culture. And that culture was actually rooted in appropriated 
extraction. So the falsity, the convolution of that. So what happened for me, David, and I'm bringing this up because this is the spaces that I'm really concerned about that kind of suddenly my eyes opened and I was like, oh my God, was a form of racism that I was playing out and didn't know as a well-meaning white person was my story of exceptionalism. Because I grew up with this exceptional story of growing up in a yoga culture and it's Indian and, you know, we had this bigger worldview and all these things. And even though I was pulling it apart and trying to find me and the narrative of my life is breaking that up, I still held this kind of exceptionalist view that allowed me, in my opinion, to hide among my friends that are black and cultured and not want to go into these white spaces because they're so not aware of culture. They're so offensive to basic culture. And I'm talking about, say, I introduce my name and they'll be like, oh, that's too hard. Let let me just call you Sue. And you're like, huh? Wait, what, what, what just happened? And you don't even know what just happened, but essentially you, there's an experience, an exchange where your humanity is not acknowledged. And it's because it's not equaling the standard of what humanity is equaled. And so this happens to black and brown people all the time. But here I'm a white person inhabiting this other culture. And so that was my lived experience. Take that veil off and let me start seeing what's actually happening. Well, I'm a white woman. Well, I'm a spiritual white woman. Well, I'm a spiritual white woman examining areas of conscious sexuality. But I'm not using my voice, even though I see what you see. I'm seeing that assault on humanity of other people that aren't white, but I'm not speaking to it. I'm just avoiding the space. Like, oh, that doesn't Mm -hmm. feel good. I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I change my name, introduce myself as Kimberly, cut my hair, look normal, I could inhabit a white space anytime I wanted to. And a black person can't do that. So the exceptionalism I'm playing out in this silence, I'm using white silence and white exceptionalism to not use my whiteness as a way to speak to things that perhaps people in black and brown bodies, if they speak to, don't get heard. But because I speak to the same thing, my platform gets heard, which is a part of what we're dismantling here is Mm -hmm. how safe spaces are not occurring for black and brown people and other people of color that literally should be safe spaces, conscious sexuality spaces, conscious consciousness, exploration spaces. These could be wonderful spaces, but they're often not. Yeah. And I think that that's a big loss. Um, You know, those who are holding those, you know, facilitating these events, these activities, these teachings and so on. Like they, I don't know that they recognize the gaping hole in their understanding because it's not just um or it doesn't work for these people or or you know they don't want to participate it's your knowledge your understanding is really incomplete like you know 20 percent of what you think you know (laughs) because it doesn't apply to like it like there's a there's some reason that it doesn't work for these other groups of people and and um so they're not it's the white gaze. It's like, it's not acknowledging Well, that is a white gaze. And it's not, it's not for so many people, even though you mm-hmm. think that's the mm-hmm. standard for humanity. Right. And it does actually cause all the other cultures, all the other groups to have to see more because they understand themselves. And now they have to be able to understand mm-hmm. this environment that has been presented to them. 
Yes. Yes. Well articulated. This is very painful territory. It's uncomfortable territory, I want to say. I don't know if pain is the word I'd use. I'd say uncomfortable, but it brings up a lot of sensations that are like tight Uh and jagged and thick Mm -hmm. and dense. Absolutely. And as you say that, um, I'm suddenly aware of um, how many times I've seen this dynamic, not even not at the scales that we're talking about in these large groups, but even in one-on-one conversations with friends, it's the same thing where they're not able to see past um, their own idealistic view of themselves. Hmm. I think this has been called like white centering Hmm. where it kind of circles back around um, through the lens of a view or the white gaze. Once again, it's like, um, instead of realizing, wow, everything isn't through your vantage point. I like that. I mean, meaning white people's vantage point. And I think I think this really hits the well-meaning area that is so crucial that I'm I'm really hoping it, the veil pierces for that. There's a level of inquiry we have to do about the way we've been taught to see the world, and it's a hard thing to examine. I'm talking about the sea of white people that have no idea that, you know, the things they're spewing, like, do you not know that that's so like, it's, it's not even like explaining sometimes it's almost just like this visceral, like, right. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, the beautiful secret of that is um, that, and, and I, I will just speak for myself. Um, but I, I would imagine that for any person of color and any color um, that, there is a capacity for understanding of that. Like um, for different friends that I have, I know that they, it, you know, they have a certain view of themselves. And for me to point out, um, and I, I wouldn't even call it a flaw, but their shadow, the um, the blind sides. They're blind, uh, sure. Yeah, um, it, it's we can't get there. It's too painful there, and and for me. I see it, but they, you know, they feel assaulted. They're, you know, I'm, I'm attacking them. To You're talking about out. white people. If yes. you pointed it out. Okay. I'm yes. just getting clear. So right. assaulted, I, I attacked, keep going. Right. I haven't had this experience with a person of color, you know, we, I, I exactly. Cause some, there's a some, mutual some, acknowledgement, right? Yes. Yes. I have blind spots. I know. <laughs> and if you point one out that I haven't seen, it's like, Oh, wow. I do do that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out for me. Right. I'm going to yeah. spend some time with that. <laughs> or, or, or at worst, I will just get quiet and have to go take a look at that. Cause that was really interesting. I did not see that coming. Mm-hmm. And, um, but when I do find um, a, a friend who I'm pointing this out to, and I'm seeing that they're just a white friend, a white friend, and okay. they're not able to go there. Um, what I find in myself, what comes up in me is compassion because I know that, I know that they have no idea. I, in my mind, I just, my mind just says they don't see it. And I just, I can let it go at that. I don't need to show them that they're a bad person or, um, and, and I don't even have that mindset that you're a bad person. I just, you don't see it. And, and the frustrating part is once I reach that point is I often feel there's nothing I can do. I, and, and the beautiful side of that is sometimes 
six years later, they come back and, and they're telling me about this thing they've discovered about themselves. And they have to chuckle because yeah, I told you that six years ago. <laughs> mm. Oh my God, doesn't consciousness work like that, right? The yes, things we're aware of. What I want to point out of what you're saying though, is that if you had this simple conversation with a, a, a person of color, a black friend, a Chinese friend, and you said, hey, when you do this, it makes me feel like this, this person's going to receive it or, or whatever. You've, you're saying you've had those. And if you got that kind of feedback, you'd be like, well, and you, you at least internalize it enough to be like, I'm going to sit, I'm going to start paying attention. And that's been kind of the MO. But when this right. same feedback happens with somebody who happens to inhabit a white body that hasn't been the experience majority of the time is what I'm hearing. That yeah, is I don't, like a fragility response. It's like a yeah. um, fragile or even just not the ability to, to, to be in the empathetic state of seeing it from a different point of view outside of their worldview. Right. And I don't know if, if I would say majority, if I, if I would go that far, um, but um You've just had incidences where that, not yes. all the white people and, you've and ever it, had this it conversation. Is an, it is an incident that does repeat. So I, I've had many incidences. Uh, I, I just wouldn't go as far as saying majority. Um, and I would but add- a repeating occurrences matter because we're talking about that it's not just a one-off thing. You're talking exactly. about more often than other times, say with other people of culture, mm-hmm. yes. that's showing itself. So you're just recognizing a pattern. Right. And I would also add, there's one more piece where, um, you know, for a person of color or um, any, any color, um, it's, it's not always an acceptance. Sometimes there's an outright denial, but there's also a feeling in my body that, oh, wait, you know, <laughs> this person knows. They just don't want to admit or they're, um, it's intentional that they're not acknowledging it. And, and so that's the feeling that is it, it, something that has been different in those cases. But at least in that case, it is a, a conscious choice. So it feels like a conscious choice more so than um, a triggered response. I, I, I would define, de- describe it as that. Well said, a triggered response. And this is really kind of like a circle around this conversation in that the real responsibility that that people that inhabit white bodies have is to do a level of inquiry that... Um, we haven't ever been faced with because race hasn't ever been something that we've had to look at. And we don't have skill sets or for lack of a better word, a muscle group in our body that reminds us that we have the ability to build capacity to see and feel and experience racialized trauma to stop being blind to the fact that it exists and we have to recognize that the reason we're blind is not a personal reason it's a historical well-marketed reason that we don't know so it doesn't mean that we're absolvent of the responsibility to start picking away at our inability to see what's in plain sight that black and brown people and all people of color really see plainly because when you grow up outside of culture or outside of a defined culture, you can see something that other people can't see. It's like a fish in the water. The fish doesn't see the water. It's just their normal inhabitant. Well, this is a really big part about learning kind of the anti-racist rhetoric and lingo and not letting it become rhetoric, but really letting yourself get pierced to say, wow, my worldview could be skewed. 
And not is it not just cured, but it's intentionally designed to not have us see it. Right. Right. And so what you're talking about is getting that poked and the, the triggered response that comes is a survival response. Absolutely. It feels the response, it has the intensity yes. of a response that I would have if my life was threatened. Like mm-hmm. something, something in my core, something that I desperately count on, that I desperately need to be true is, is being pulled apart. And I go into, you know, fight mode. And that's the response that I'm talking about. Thank you for that. It's really important. This is the um, this is the realm of, of white fragility. You know, there's a whole book on that. And in the book, Me and White Supremacy, which, you know, I talk about throughout the series of, of podcasts, you know, as, as white people, we can start looking at these words that might be new for us as we hear it. You might not cognitively know that you're on trigger response, but your body is volatile and there's something happening. There's, there's ways to start learning to track this so that we're not operating from triggered response. We can actually like start to be with the internal physical threat that's happening. That's a historical story that traces way further back than your own um, personal lifetime. And this is a part of what makes this, um, these conversations uncomfortable, but also this personal inquiry uncomfortable because it is a matter of our own perceived survival. And that's, you know, we don't come up with our, our patterns of survival. We're embedded into them. We're yeah. breaded into them. But it is our job to stay present day and start unpacking that so that we can connect in real connectivity with people and, and, and make sure that we're fostering safe spaces. And we actually know what that actually means for somebody that inhabits a body that isn't white. Absolutely. And I, I think that is our, our commonality. That, that's the place where we will all meet is because no matter what the thing is, no matter what, whether it's, um, you know, the, these things um, being triggered because we don't, uh, we're, we're being shown ourselves in a way that doesn't meet our ideal or being triggered that um, we're not feeling safe in a certain environment, like the, the work that had, that has to be done or the, um, the body response is the same. So we, that's, what, that's where we all have to get in and do the same work. That's exactly right. <clears throat> David, are you familiar with um, Resma Menicum and his uh, work called uh, My Grandmother's Hands, Healing I, Racialized Trauma? No, I have the book, but I, haven't, I, I have not read that. Uh, I bring it up pretty much on every episode because we really got into it in the somatic based stuff we talked about today. But one of the things that that he calls, I'm going to address two things that you brought up that so eloquently, is one is that he talks about the importance of white bodies unpacking their own stuff with other white bodies and the necessity of that, that we don't um, draw on our one or two black friends or 10 or 20 or go into spaces of culture and unpack some of this really convoluted stuff inside. A, it's not safe for us because we need to get free to unpack some of the weird things that come out of us and not use the emotional labor of yes. 
black people. Yeah. <laughs> um, number one, but the other thing, and this goes more to what you were talking about, not feeling safe um, around, like where are spaces for me to really unhinge and, and feel the anger that is coming up. And he mm-hmm. talks about his work of um, the importance of black people coming together with other black people, because yes. that's the shared space that does know how to foster this level of safety. And his work is called somatic abolitionism and he's creating specific um, or uh, spaces for bodies of culture mm-hmm. and then other spaces for white bodies that other facilitators are leading. And so I just wanted to invite listeners, mm-hmm. invite our guests to learn more about somatic abolitionism yeah. and that the abolitionist work, the protest needs to happen inside of our own bodies inside of our own unconscious preservation responses and that black people have that to unpack because your bodies historically will cater to the white body unconsciously. And he talks about the need to start un, you know, pulling that apart because it's not black bodies jobs to soothe the white body anymore, but that's right. such a historical coupling mm-hmm. where black people were made responsible to soothe and make us feel safe and comfortable. And if they didn't do that, then they were automatically a threat. And so your conversation brought that dualism up. So interesting that you, uh, you, you make that last point because uh, that's exactly where we are still right now. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Well, and this is why he, this is active anti-racist work. The, the, this is what I liked about his, this book particularly, and what he's putting out into the world is the, the work isn't out there. The work is very much in our own body because the memory, the response systems, the preservation, the triggers, we each have our unique ones. And some of them are historically collective and some of them are historically personal. But either way, it's our job to unpack it in our own bodies. But we do that in community because we didn't get these violations by ourselves. We got these violations in community and culture and we need to unpack them and heal them in community and culture. So I highly encourage everyone to get his work. His latest book is called The Quaking of America. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just brilliant in helping us do, David, what we've been learning in a lot of these spaces around somatic awareness and slowing it down and paying attention and noticing. He's giving us that, but from a very historically trauma-informed lens, And it's really helpful to land it properly, to be able to actually track the unconscious stories living in our bodies that are racialized. And we're, we, of course, we're not supposed to see them. If we were meant to see them, when we know race is actually a a, a fake construct. And so it's that sophisticated that it's meant to be invisible. And so the stories that are embedded into our bodies are designed that way. And so he helps to break it apart in a way that names what we feel. Mm -hmm. And helps us do the work in our inhabited body versus out, you know, all of the divide and conquer that never, you know, that's not getting to where, where the healing is. And the healing is, you know, our body in relation to your body. Can we co-regulate even though we inhabit different bodies? Of course we can, but the story wants us to believe that we can't. Beautiful. 
And so that's what a part of this is for us together is we're learning, wow, as we do and we, what he calls metabolizing our pain, when we face our pain, what you're talking about, when we face the shadow and we start metabolizing the pain, instead of pushing it to the side and pretending all is well, and we're all love and light and everything is one energy. No, when we start to really in, inhabit and acknowledge the person the humanity of the person that's in front of us, the body that's in front of us and all that it may hold. If we can do that, we've accomplished a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, his work gives me hope, especially in this very complex, volatile conversation around uh, historical trauma, but specifically racialized trauma um, and whiteness, the pervasion of whiteness that feels like it's never ending and the assault of white supremacy and the terrorism of it can make it feel like there is no hope. And I know that if we start doing the somatic-based healing, there's something that can come from it because we have the capacity to sit with each other and have a conversation, even if we're um, feeling uncomfortable. Beautiful. Thank you for today. Thank you for today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As we wrap up, I I really want to ask, um, is there anything left? that you want to say? Is there anything that you want to say to well-meaning white people? Anything at all? That's no, I think, I think this has been a very full conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. And um, yeah, it's a lot to integrate. Thank you for the, um, just the space to, to share this. I, I did mention to a couple of friends that I was going to be on this podcast with you as a, for me, as a way of, um, you know, integrating some of, you know, this past weekend's experiences in my own body, uh, just being able to talk about it is um, having, a, having a space to talk about it is a, um, a big um, service to me and allows me to, to move through some of this. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I, I'm happy. It's really the, the idea is that, you know, there's not a lot of solutions available to us here but there's a whole lot of fucking questions and we got to get better and better at asking better questions, not of the world, but of ourselves Yes, and breaking it apart so that we can come together in our humanity and how many ways we can come together once we really get real and truthful um, about the predatory patterns that live in our unconscious psyche and in our um, verbal and everyday behavior. So thank you for your sharing Um, your brilliance, your willingness to um, break apart what may be uh, invisible in you. And um, having eloquent language in places that you could choose otherwise. (laughs) I think that's training and and that'll probably be a part of what's breaking apart more and more. But I appreciate it because it shows to me the heart in which you really do want well-meaning people well white people to to just do better like do the work on you because there's more in you in there than that trigger and we need you a part of the conversation because all your energy could could be helping this cause so much further absolutely and i I don't think anybody should be afraid of that i think it's beautiful when you do open up those spaces and that you you allow the conversation around these spaces that may be you know that may have been your blind spots um, so I think sometimes we fear that this is the ugly side of us, but acknowledging that is a beautiful thing. Yes. 
Yes, thank you. And to all my listeners, I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for your sharing support. Please like and subscribe and share this podcast with someone you know that wants to be a part of the listening revolution. Remember that dismantling white body supremacy begins inside of you, inside of me, and inside of the collective we in our personal commitment in our own bodies of culture to grow the white experience beyond assumed supremacy. I invite you to learn to listen and to grow beyond the limitations that whiteness has and continues to impose on all of us. If you need support beyond this listening space, you can connect with me at gurunishan.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please send me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. Thank you so much for your support in listening. And as a part of every episode, I ask our guests to bring a song that, um, represents or kind of share it was meaningful in their own lived experience and we play the song at the end of every episode but because of copyright purposes we won't play the whole song but you can listen to the podcast playlist to kind of get a feeling of each episode's full song that has been brought to the episode for the day so would you like to introduce um your song before we cut over to it sure this is marvin Gaye's. what's going on all right. Why'd you choose this song? Uh, this song has a, a lot of meaning for me. Um, one, as a child, um, I think I, I remember back to being, you know, three and four years old, hearing this song on the radio on Saturday mornings as my mother was cleaning the house. Uh, I also remember being impacted when he was killed in, I think it was 1981. And, um, and it's also a song that asked a question way back in the 70s that still needs to be asked. Mm. And... Um, so it's it's a timeless, uh, truly a timeless song and a beautiful um, composition, um, the lyrics, all of this. Excellent. And we'll go ahead and share the screen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that share. Thank you so much for your shares, your vulnerability, your heart, your story. And this has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness Podcast, the untold stories of well-meaning white people. Thank you again for tuning in and please share this podcast with a friend. Beautiful.